Tonight, we're continuing on our study through this idea of hermeneutics. And we're going to look tonight at a couple of inspirational quotes. Okay, you ready to be inspired? Okay. Let's start off with just uh, our definition. I'm just giving this to you so much because I, I don't want this to ever leave you. When we're talking about hermeneutics, what are we talking about? We're talking about the art and science of biblical interpretation. It's what we're talking about. What type of interpretation are we talking about? As we spoke last week, we're talking about the grammatical historical method of biblical interpretation, which means we take into account the historical cultural setting along with grammar and syntax. Now, if you're totally lost by that, it means that you weren't here last week, um, and you need to go catch up on, on YouTube with us. Okay. Now, here's the inspirational quotes. Okay. This, these, the, all these quotes are from a guy named Jonathan Alvarado, the Bishop of Grace Fellowship of Church, should be Churches, International, a Pentecostal theologian. That's his own title, by the way. He gave himself all those titles. Biblical fundamentalism stifles creative encounters with the Spirit. Next. Pentecostal readings are growing to become more sophisticated, enchanting, and mystical. Are you inspired? Next. A Pentecostal hermeneutic is one that focuses on the text as interpreting the reader rather than the reader as interpreting the text. No, hang on. Let me read that one again. But what does it matter if we're not interpreting his text anyway? Do you see how this makes no sense? Like the Bible is the only text in the world that you don't interpret. You let it interpret you. We're not interpreting the text, but we're supposed to interpret his text? Right. Next. You have to embrace the idea that God is still speaking, that her voice is still resonating in the universe. Now, you might ask, how, do these, uh, how does one think of these types of statements, these types of ideas? Where does this come from? And how are we sure to avoid errors? How can we have any argument against these things? How are we to rightly think about these things? Let's look. Uh, I've been trying to incorporate a devotional aspect to this if you haven't figured it out yet. So tonight we're going to start with looking at Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Another inspirational story about Nadab and Abihu. It is inspirational, actually. Just as those passages, those, or those quotes were inspirational. What does it inspire you to? Right? They are inspirational. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Let's look at it together. <coughs> 
Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized, or your Bible may say strange, fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Aaron was the father of the two men who just died at the very hand of God himself. And Aaron had nothing to say in response. He held his peace about it. What just happened in this story? It's very interesting, and it's very applicable to our study through hermeneutics. So what happened? Well, this took place on the day of Israel's inauguration of public worship, and Aaron and his sons were being ordained as priests, Aaron himself being the high priest. Now, there were two other sons of Aaron. Nadab and Abihu were the two older sons. And uh, they had already been doing, if you even just glance back, in chapter 9, and just kind of look at some of the things going on there. Um, th- look at chapter 9, verse 12. He killed the burnt offering, and Aaron's sons handed him the blood, and they threw it against the sides of the altar. So Aaron's sons were already, had just previously, in the same day, earlier that day, they were helping Aaron in all of the rituals that were happening that day. And they had been ordained as priests, and so it's not as though God had not said, had not had told them that they're not authorized, in a sense, to offer this incense before God. They were authorized to act in this ritual manner. But what they did and when they did it and how they did it was unauthorized. The word is, it's a, it's a weird word. It's a strange word. It means strange. It means, it's, It means alien, foreign, unauthorized is good because it actually speaks of someone who has not been given authority to do a task. They're unauthorized to do so. But it says that the fire itself was unauthorized, not the men. They they offered unauthorized fire, not that the men themselves were unauthorized. You understand the difference? So they did something that God had, had not commanded them to do. They did it freely on their own. So what was the issue? So what was the sin? What was the problem? Why did God decide in that moment to take them out of the earth? Because of what they did. So there was an incense offering. Was it at the wrong time? Uh, Was it in the wrong place? Uh, Were the coals taken from the wrong place? The coals were supposed to be taken from the altar, Leviticus 16.12. One thing I considered, because it was fresh on my mind because I've been looking into these things is was it were they imitating what they had previously seen done in Egypt for so long because offering incense in worship to your God was an Egyptian practice as well you can look at a lot of hieroglyphics and see that they're offering they'll have these incense altars and it looks kind of like an arm and they're offering incense to their God burning it before the presence and it's actually what it's doing is it's inviting the very presence of God among you with a pleasing aroma. Where, you know, you don't know some of the stuff I do, but I'll tell you one thing I did. Before you all got here, 
I sprayed lavender essential oil on every single one of the seats in this room. You didn't know that I did that. I've done it many, many times because the chairs in here are getting a little, you know. So I freshen them up a little bit. So I, I but you don't know that I did that, but, but what am I doing? I'm trying to create an atmosphere where you're not put off. Likewise, the priests are creating an atmosphere to welcome in the presence of God. Does this please you? Do you like how it smells? And so God will come into their presence. Now, for the pagans, that was so. They were beckoning the gods to come in them. But God had said to Israel, to Aaron, do this uh, because it's what I've commanded you to do. I'm, I'm letting you know what to do. But at the same time, they came from an environment where they had been doing certain practices. Did they just start to incorporate what they've seen done in the past? And they weren't following what God had commanded. Either way, it's true that they were not doing what God had commanded. They came up with this stuff on their own. Whatever it is they did that was specifically wrong, God had not commanded them to do. Exodus chapter 30 verse 9 says, you shall not offer unauthorized incense on it or burnt offering or a grain offering. You shall not pour a drink offering on it. All these types of things, grain offerings, drink offerings, called a libation, these things were being done in the pagan world all around them. And so they had to know their limits. They are doing this. Is that okay for us to do? They practice their religion this way. Is that what you're asking us to do? Is that what you want? And so God was setting the limits of what they were to do as God's people. What do we take from this? Well, I've summarized it here on the screen. This is what I want us to take from this idea, that our worship as God is informed by the revelation of God. So we should be careful, therefore, to rightly understand God's revealed word and shape our lives accordingly. How we worship matters to God. Is this very evident in our text? What we do and how we worship God and how we understand what God has called us to do as his people actually matters to him. Now in this matter regarding an offering and an incense and the priesthood, um, we have Jesus as the fulfillment of that concept. But what are we seeing about God's character here? is that our God is a holy God and that there are certain things that God is pleased with and other things that God is not pleased with. And that's absolutely true, right? So how do we figure out what God is pleased with and what God is not pleased with? By means of revelation. We have direct revelation from God himself. Here. And so we need to rightly understand the revealed word of God so that our lives might be shaped by it and we might offer to God worship and thoughts about who he is that he's actually pleased with. Because of this, and I've brought this up, I've tried to bring this up every time we're talking, every week we've been through it so far, is that what you believe impacts the way you live. And so this is another example of the fact that what you believe impacts the way you live. 
So their lack of knowledge or understanding caused them to do something that ultimately got them killed at the hand of God. Right? This also happened in the New Testament. Do you remember that? Some people just suddenly dropped dead? Huh? Ananias and Sapphira? Yeah, in the New Testament, I said. Yeah, it happened also in the New Testament. Um, yeah, in the book of Acts, there were, they had sold some land. Uh, they got together and said, basically, this is my version in a nutshell. They said, hey, it c- we sold it for 20000 Let's tell them, though, that it sold for 15000 and that we're giving them the whole thing. When really they withheld some secretly for themselves. And they lied to the Holy Spirit. In other words, they were doing something. So even though they were doing something that in their minds, they may really been, hey, was it a good thing that they gave at least a portion of it? Well, sure. But it still was not what God was pleased with. And it serves to us an example that God demands holiness. Don't you see that that's the whole point? That God demands holy character, but yet he has grace on us? God demands holiness. He's a holy God and he wants holiness. How do we know what holiness is? How do we know what to rightly think, what to rightly do, how to live in this world? By means of understanding what he has said to us, by means of understanding his very character that he has revealed to us in his word. That's how we know. Well, we have the revelation of God. We have it in front of us. How do we read it? Because I want to know. Who is this God and how am I to live? in light of who he is and what he has done in this world and what he will do. The question I have for you tonight is, how have people understood the task of biblical interpretation throughout history? In other words, people uh, early on had uh, letters from Paul. They had the Old Testament. They were formulating this, this group of letters, right, that would become our New Testament. And... Uh, as they gathered them and they understood that they were scripture because scripture says that these letters are scripture and so they're, they're gathering them together. But even early on, even from about the year 100, soon after the Apostle John's death, how were people reading and studying the Bible? Is that of interest to you? What kind of method did they use to interpret the Bible? Hmm. So I'm gonna in a light speed, go through three different time periods um, of, of interpretation because it's, it's, you're going to see the big picture here very quickly. Okay, so let's start with the patristic period. That's 8100 to 450 roughly. So this is right after the apostolic age, right after all the apostles had gone. No more scripture is being written. And so you have scripture and you have the church that's the second generation. How are they then reading the scriptures? How are they understanding all these letters? How do they interpret? How do they read? That's a good question for us to ask, right? But just because we can figure out how they were doing it doesn't mean it was the perfect way. Before I start to get into this, we better have an answer to that already because if we just say, okay, let's go as far back in history as we can and figure out what they believed and what they were doing, it's the closest to the church, the early church that we can get and we need to believe like they believed. True or false? Thank you. False. 
So how did they do it in the patristic period? Well, I will say that there is no ever throughout history, you can't say everybody did this. Can you say that now? Well, everybody did this. You can't say that about any time in history ever. Everybody did this. You can't do it. But what you can do is you can say, well, a majority seem to be practicing it this way. But it's never everybody. That's actually pretty important here. So two people right off the, f uh, right off the bat. So uh, Clement of Alexandria and Origen. Um, we should not interpret scripture, uh, at least generally speaking, the way that they did. Um, so Origen and uh, so Origen was Clement's disciple and he kind of took Clement's uh, uh, thoughts to the next level as most disciples do, right? They take it and they take it to the extreme. Okay, so Origen did this. Or Origen believed in the pre-existence of souls. In other words, there's a pool of souls existing somewhere. And the divine picks a soul and inserts it into time and space. Origen believed that. Interesting. He was also a universalist. He just thought everybody would be saved no matter what they did or what they believed. Uh, he also believed in the ransom theory of the atonement that basically Jesus had to pay off Satan on the cross, which all of those are pretty big deals. I mean... Um, anyway, he followed a guy that you've heard of named Plato. Plato believed in the pre-existence of souls and, and all this. So he basically took those types of thoughts, mixed them with Christianity. But at the same time, Origen was a major player at this time in history in the church. Interesting. Okay, so, uh, okay, so, they believed, as Plato did, that the human person is divided into three parts. Um, when you study it, it's called a, it, it, there's this whole debate. Is a, is a person two or three parts? Is, is it a dichotomy or trichotomy? Is it, is it just the material and the immaterial? Or is it uh, like the body, the physical, and then there's two immaterial parts, your soul and your spirit? Anyway, that's not our conversation for tonight. You just, I guess, just, just know that that conversation exists. But anyway, they said, no, the, 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 the human person exists in three parts. And because the human person exists in three parts, guess what else? We should interpret the Bible according to our three parts. So as we have a body literally here, so there is a literal sense of scripture. And just as we have a soul there is a moral sense of scripture. And just as we have a spirit, there is a mystical sense to scripture. And all three are equally true, and that's how you interpret the Bible. A threefold sense of interpretation of the Bible. You liking that? Okay, the next guy I threw in because he lived at this time period, and it's Christmas. So we're gonna talk about St. Nicholas. St. <laughs> Nicholas um, was a real person. Uh, he lived, you can see on the screen, 27343. Uh, and St. Nicholas was a major player in church history, and he visited something called the Council of Nicaea. 
in 325. You've probably heard at least of the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea is a big deal. It was a Christological debate. Who is Jesus? What is he made of? Um, and so there was another guy named uh, Arius who was at the Council of Nicaea. Arius was a heretic. People didn't like Arius. Um, so there was this debate, uh, and if you were to talk about this kind of debate now, and people get, you'd say, that's the nerdiest debate I've ever heard of in my entire life. There, there was a debate about what is, the, what, is the, what is Jesus made out of in relationship to the Father? And so there was a debate about two words, homoousios and homoousios, two Greek words, um, sound really similar, right? One means same, one means similar. Homoousios means same, homoousios means similar. And so Arius said, the father and the son are made out of similar stuff, but not the same stuff. So St. Nick got really mad at Arius and slapped him across the face at this council and was arrested. And he said, no, no, no. Homoousios, not homoousios. And that's what they got all upset about. So, jolly old Saint Nick, that's what he really did. So, okay, so, uh, Chrysostom, he, um, his, his, it's kind of like his last name, but it's not really his last name. It means golden mouth. He, he was a preacher, um, but he, even at this time period, just notice the timestamp, 347 to 407, his life, he rejected this spiritualized, alleg allegorized um, interpretation that we had seen previously. He said, no, no, no. Uh, all that is too mystical. Um, we need to stick to a literal reading of Scripture. He said that at this, I just want you to notice how early on this is. He said, no, we need to read things um, uh, literally. Uh, well, he eventually was named a heretic and exiled. He was of the minority. The next person is Augustine, of course, of who we all know. But Augustine liked and adopted this allegorical sense of Scripture, but he said the allegorical reading of Scripture should be based upon the literal. And he adopted then a fourfold sense of Scripture. He said, if you're going to interpret Scripture, we had a threefold sense earlier, right? Three different ways to interpret Scripture. He said, no, 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 there's four. Okay, well, all right. So let's just move into the Middle Ages. What's happening now in the Middle Ages? Middle Ages, roughly, we can say, are between 590-1500. Um, and so here's the overriding idea in the Middle Ages. Just think about the Middle Ages. Think about this time period. Okay? Um, but the overriding sense was that the Bible is a mysterious book and therefore needs to be understood uh, in this mystical fashion. Okay, so here's what happens. You have this fourfold sense of Scripture. The literal sense, which is only one part of interpreting the Bible. It's only one part. And then you have an allegorical sense, you have a moral sense, you have an anagogical or mystical sense. So this is foreign to us, I understand. We're saying, but what are all these, what does this mean? It basically means that the, the word that I heard used that I think is a good example is, the, is, is Jerusalem, okay? 
when you would read the, the word Jerusalem, it wasn't simply a city, even though that particular passage was referencing it as a literal city. Okay? Jesus and the disciples went to Jerusalem. Okay? But what does it really mean? Well, we know that Jerusalem is a spiritual place. Right? Jerusalem, uh, it means uh, city of peace. So they went to the city of peace. They, what did they do morally? We ought to travel to this place of peace. Do you get where we're headed here? You, you take something and you allegorize it and then you make application based on your allegorization. Okay? And you do that with all of Scripture. All of Scripture. I know. It's weird stuff. But you know what? If we don't know where we came from and we don't know what errors we've made in the past, how can we prevent ourselves from making those errors in the future? Would you agree with that? So if you know the ways that, that we've messed up in the past, we're, we're, we're not going to repeat those same kind of errors in the future because we're aware of them. We don't want to mess up like that again. We want to interpret Scripture rightly. That's what we want. We want to know what Scripture says because it is from the very mouth of God. I don't want to mess that up. I don't know about you, but I want to actually hear from God himself. Okay, so uh, next, a couple, couple more guys here. I'm not going to give you too many more. Actually, in the Middle Ages, this is it. So Thomas Aquinas. Um, you can see what age or what, what time period we're at here now. This is still in the Middle Ages. Um, Thomas Aquinas. Actually, it's very interesting. It, Thomas Aquinas is, is starting to be studied by more and more people right now. Um, but Thomas Aquinas kind of said, he was, Thomas Aquinas is a Roman Catholic theologian. Roman Catholic theologian. So if you start hearing someone talk about Thomas Aquinas, you're reading a book, and they're like, well, Thomas thought this way about it. He was a Roman Catholic. Please just keep that in, in your mind, okay? Okay, anyway, he said the literal sense is necessary for the allegorical sense, kind of like Augustine. But then there was this other guy. Who is this? Nicholas of Lyra. He said, Scripture has a literal meaning, and he complained that there's a tendency for the mystical meaning to be allowed to choke out the literal meaning. And that happens, doesn't it? If you think that Scripture is only this mystical book, only with mystical, cryptic things in it, you're going to allow those mystical things to choke out the real thing that's actually there. This is an error for us to avoid. Because I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know that there's a person in this room that has not ever interpreted the Bible in this allegorical, hyper-mystical, spiritual sense, and you have just made it mean something so meaningful to you. you say, but that's not actually what this is talking about at all. You say, I know, but it just, it makes me feel so good. Because that's what we want. We want to feel good. And so if we're not careful we're going to tell ourselves something about the text that's not really there. And what, what do we have in our tool belt to, to stop us, to help us, to put the brakes on that situation, to guard us from that? What do we have? 
That's good. What else? The Holy Spirit told me that I shouldn't go to church tonight. The Holy Spirit is leading me to fill in the blank. Because I have the Spirit, how can I be wrong? Because I told you I prayed about it, how can I be wrong? Because I told you I just feel the Spirit's guidance, how could I be wrong? Huh? It does, because who's the author of Scripture? God himself, that same Spirit that is leading you there is not going to lead you contrary to what he has specifically already said. But often you're going to hear it. You're going to hear it everywhere. You start to listen for it. I just feel like God is telling me not to do that right now. I feel like God is just leading me to... Now, I will say that if it's an act of charity and you feel like, well, that you've just been on my heart and I wanted to do this, okay, go ahead. You should be charitable. Yes, Did God lead you to be charitable? Well, yeah, we're supposed to be charitable. So yeah, you're right. I think God did lead you to do that. You following what I'm saying? We have to move on. Who made me start talking about that? Nicholas of Lyra. So he, yeah, it probably was Ginger. So so what, what I'm saying here is that the overriding interpretation was based on two things, and so I'm just going to summarize all of that history, like 1,500 years. I'm going to summarize it on the screen. So it says, tradition and allegory held up as the primary interpretive method until the time of the Reformation. What do I mean by tradition? Well, as Thomas Aquinas would say, um, we need to first understand what we believe, and then we need to go to the Bible to see it. We need to first be taught church doctrine And then, having that lens, now here's your Bible, go and figure out what we believe. We've already told you, but now go find it in the Bible. You can't interpret, this is Roman Catholic, by the way. We have told you the parameters in which you can believe. You cannot believe outside this box. So, if you're going to interpret that to mean that, you're wrong because the church has already interpreted it for you. It's not what it means, this is what it means. Who didn't like that? Martin Luther. But some other people too. As we can see, as with Chrysostom and Lyra, they, 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 were, they were minority voices though, weren't they? But he kind of came on the back of them saying, no, 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 no. That, that can't be right. You're allowing this mystical, allegorical sense to cloud what you believe about Scripture or what you believe about God, or what you believe to be truth. And it's, it's choking out truth. Martin Luther is the one that made it a public sensation, standing on the back of others. But he, he, he came off the back of other people too. So let's just move quickly into the Reformation. We're going to wrap this up here pretty quick. Reformation, what happened then? So Reformation, we know, starts 1570, October 31st, 1517. What happened then? Nailed the 95 Thesis to uh, the church uh, door. Castle church door. I will, uh, well, I'll just go ahead and tell you so I don't have to, well, we can talk about it later, but I, I, in March, I will be going and visiting this door in person. I'm going to be taking a 
Reformation tour through Germany, Switzerland, and France. And so I'm going to, the first stop is in Berlin, and then we're going to go to Martin Luther's house where he studied. We're going to go to the school where he spent most of his life. We're going to visit this castle door where he um, nailed his 95 Theses. And then we're going to go to Switzerland. We're going to see John Kelvin's Geneva. Uh, we're going to go to France. And so um, uh, I'm looking forward to that. But this, this right here, Erasmus studied in Switzerland. And so then you have uh, Erasmus. We, we, we know what Erasmus did because we just came out of learning about the, uh, how we got our Bible, right? It's said, even, even in this time period, this is the phrase that started to be said, that Erasmus laid the egg that Luther hatched. How did, how did Erasmus lay an egg? What egg did he lay that Luther hatched? That the Vulgate is not the best translation that there is, but you know what? There are actually some mistakes in it, and not only that, these apocryphal books that you're basing so much of your doctrine on, I don't even think they're part of Scripture. And so all of a sudden, we, we started to say, wait, 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 so what is Scripture? Wait, what is the Word of God? And if it is here, then are we ter- interpreting it rightly? And has it changed all of our doctrine? And what's going on here? And so Martin Luther specifically attacked indulgences in his 95 Theses, but, but he later on went to talk about all these different things that were happening with wrong theology. And how was he doing that? What was Martin Luther's view of scripture? How was he interpreting it? How were the reformers interpreting it? And why were they called the reformers? Why is this the age of the reformation? What is being reformed? Okay, so Martin Luther and John Calvin come on the scene, and uh, not at the exact same time, though. Martin Luther was, was older, um, but they believe this, that only Scripture has divine authority for believers. Do you believe that only Scripture has divine authority for believers? What about tradition? Did the majority believe that to be true at that time? The majority still believe that tradition, the way we have traditionally interpreted things, holds as authority for my life because the church has said so. But the reformers broke through that tradition. Last slide, I believe. Allegory leads only to empty speculation. Martin Luther said that. Scripture has only one meaning, its historical sense, based on grammar and historical context. Martin Luther said that. In other words, what kind of interpretation were the reformers using? The grammatical, historical, interpretive method. Why? Because the allegorical, mystical, spiritual sense, along with tradition, was controlling everyone. And what we believe impacts the way we live. And so is it no wonder that so many people were buying these indulgences that the church was selling? They didn't know any better. That's what they were taught. And so Martin Luther, along with others, worked to get the word of God in the hands of the everyday person so that they could read the word of God themselves and interpret it properly. This was the work of the Reformation. And I think on that note, we'll, we'll end tonight, okay? All right, let's pray together.